Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind, they are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with the line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, oh, I'm warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see and their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offences like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid.
Well, it is good to see you. Just this growing conviction, knowledge and experience has to go together. I think we're very good in the conservative part of the Christian world. We know our Bibles, we love our Bibles, but we must also knowledge, with knowledge comes an experience of the goodness of God. It has to. Um, so we want to hear that what the Bible's got to say to us this morning. Please turn to Exodus, not to Isaiah, Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read you just six verses, six familiar verses, and then we're going to think about this topic of God's supremacy. So it's Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 20. I'm going to read to you the first six verses. It's on the screen as well. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them to worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I am the Lord your God, who led you out of slavery. Do not make an idol, for I am jealous. It's a summary of those six uh, sentences. So we continue our series on the attributes of God. Who is God? What is he like? And last week we thought the only reason we can possibly know that because God has graciously revealed himself. He has made himself knowable in the person of Jesus. And today we're on supremacy. How do you do justice to that in half an hour or so? The supremacy of God, the incomparable nature of God, the fact that God and God alone deserves to be number one. The kids' song has it absolutely right. Jesus, number one, right at the top where he belongs. Who he is and what he's done makes Jesus number one. But the trouble is we often don't treat God as number one. We don't give him the honor and the renown and the place in our hearts, minds, and lives that we deserve. Other things get in the way. We do worship other gods, which is why verse 3 is necessary to all people in all places and at all times. You shall have no other gods before me. Because it's written to all people for all times, God knows that the human heart doesn't change. This is not just written to its first hearers. That's God's people who he's rescued from the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're now at Mount Sinai. And so God speaks these 10 words from God that Moses writes down for all people in all times. Because just as you know your own heart better as you get older, God knows your hearts no matter what. Uh, week you've had, no matter what upbringing you've experienced or the place that you call home. We have a human capacity in our heart to worship anything other than God. That's why verse 3 is so important. And so is verse 4. No gods before me, no idols shall be made. And our capacity to make idols is just vast, is it not? We serve God one day a week if we're lucky and all too often Other things pop up as priorities in our hearts and in our minds. And the whole 
purpose, the whole point of the Bible and the Christian faith is to show us, to reveal to us the character and nature and promise-keeping purposes of God in Jesus. To recognize his greatness, his supremacy, his goodness. To recognize his kindness, his sovereign purposes. The direction of human history that God has come, God will return, and God is altogether lovely and he's always trustworthy. And there's a huge body of evidence in human history and in the Bible And yet, so many times we want to rip that up in our hearts and minds and we want to exchange the goodness of God for another. That's what Romans chapter 1 says when it comes to the topic of idolatry that we're going to think about this morning. Romans 1 expresses it so clearly three times. It's called the great exchange. For all of God's good, loving revelation of his character, his handiwork in creation, his nature and his promises, his love upon the cross, we want to exchange that for... For something or for anything or for anybody else, we have a capacity in our hearts to exchange the goodness of God and worship something else or someone else. It's the the turn, the intentional, deliberate turn and exchanging God, the God who saved his people, verse 2. And then straight away God has to command, verse 3 and verse 4, no other gods no other idols. I just want to spend some time thinking about that this morning. God deserves supremacy, but in a whole host of ways. Because of our hearts, we want to exchange the goodness of God for something or for someone else. And I want to begin by just thinking about our needs, the needs our heart has for idols. That may be a strange term, the needs, but let me just explain to you what I mean. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Just think about the ways that God uses his name to reveal his character in sentence number two. I am the Lord your God. If you analyze that terminology just quickly and carefully, this is what it says. God does not just say, I'm God, don't have any idols. He could have said that, treating us as uh, objects, not subjects. This is who I am, so this is what you do. But God does not reveal himself in that way. He says, verse two, I'm Yahweh. I am Lord. Capitalized letters. Did you notice that? I am the creator of all. And I've redeemed you. I've rescued you by the power of my hand. I formed you. Because I formed you, you are mine. I own you. And you should respond to me not as a, uh, not as a thing, but as a lover. In covenant relationship, you should respond to me because you are mine. I know you. I own you. But notice that's not only what he says, there's also the phrase, Lord God. Not just, I'm God, obey me. I am Yahweh, but I'm also Elohim. I am the Lord God. I'm the mighty one. And because of who I am, this is how you should respond to me. I'm your Lord and I'm your God. I want your allegiance. I deserve your allegiance. I want your heart. I want your affections. I deserve supremacy. Will you give it to me? Because of who I've revealed myself to be. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, from slavery to freedom. If you follow me, I will give myself to you. Will you give yourself to me? I will fill your life with joy and freedom. Just follow my ways. 
will we take God at his word? And because Genesis 2 says that we're made in the image of God, we are built for covenant relationships. We're built for love relationships. We're built for promise-filled and promise-shaped relationships. It's covenantal love. You were built to live for someone, says the Bible. You were made to love someone, says the Bible. You were built to worship someone, and we all will worship someone or something. And so verse 3 of Exodus 20 opens up my heart and your heart like a can opener does. There is in our hearts the capacity to form other gods, to worship other idols. It's a need that we have to worship something because we're made in the image of God, but we take that good created order and we twist it. We curve it in upon ourselves, says John Calvin. See, sin rebellion is so much more than breaking the rules. It is breaking the rules, but Vaughan Roberts on God's Big Picture says it's breaking the rules and making our own rules. But it's more than that as well. It's breaking and making the rules, but it's also idolatry. So it's just another one of many different angles that the Bible has on the nature of our rebellious heart. But what's at the very center of that? Why do we want to reject God's loving rule and exchange his care and his kingship for the worship of another? What's the dynamics of idolatry? How does it work? Here's how it works. It's about a motive. The first lie in the Bible is from the lips of a serpent that says God is not good, he cannot be trusted, and he is not kind. You cannot take him at his word. And so the heart of idolatry, the dynamics, how it works out is, I don't want to give the God of the Bible my life. I cannot trust him. I will not give him my heart. He is not trustworthy. If you give him supremacy that he deserves, you'll miss out. Why don't you rule your own life? Why don't you go after another God? Why don't you exchange the glory of God for another? At the heart of idolatry is we don't want to trust God. You're all control freaks like me. If you did God, the glory that is due to his name, if you give him control, if he's in the driving seat of your life, we'll miss out. That's what we think. And that lie is sunk down into every human heart. We want control. We do not want to give God the trust and the supremacy that he deserves. But why do we need to do that? Well, sometimes I'm tempted when I'm really, really hungry to eat vegetables. Hunger can do amazing things. And just like hunger making you want to eat vegetables, or hunger, sometimes you even drink poison, you're that thirsty. Our hearts are so wired to worship God that we will worship anything or anyone. But why? Thirdly, it's not just about a need, it's not just about a necessity and a motivation. Why do we want to worship something else? At its heart... There is control, but we long to be rescued. We long for salvation. We long for enoughness. We long for what Isaiah 44 describes with the craftsman hewing some coal or some wood. It's so humorous, but it's so deeply tragic because we do exactly the same thing. We long for our idol, whatever that is, to save us. Notice that in Isaiah 44. The craftsman's there. He's marked it out. He's used a tool to sharpen and fashion an idol. He uses the other half to burn, to give himself warmth. And then he says to the idol that he's made with his own hands, save me, rescue me. And you're probably thinking, oh, come on. 
We don't live in a primitive society. It's the 21st century. But friends, we do exactly the same thing. It's just more complex. It's just more private. But our hearts work in just the same way. We're not talking about institutions where you go and bow down to something, you prostrate yourself. But everyone in this room has something or someone that you bow before. Something or someone that you give yourself to. There's a recent book that's just unpacked me, unpacked this for me in a fresh way. It's called Seculosity. What a great title. Religiosity is the practice that men and women, boys and girls, do in a religious way to think they can get their way to God. Christianity is not a religion. It's a living, personal relationship with the maker of heaven and earth because of Jesus Christ and by his spirit. But religiosity is when we try and work hard enough to prove ourselves to God. And David Zahl flips that on its head and says, in a post-Christian society, in a post-Christian culture, where God is no longer our reference point, we still function in a religious way. But now our reference point is not God, it's other people. It's a brilliant book. And says, our hearts long for approval and acceptance. We don't use the word self-justification anymore. We use the word enoughness. Am I attractive enough? Have I worked hard enough? Am I busy enough? Am I a good enough parent? Am I a good enough lover? Am I a good enough worker? All these different ways are a way of getting our approval from other people. It's seculosity rather than religiosity. It's horizontal, not vertical, but we function in just the same way. It's a profoundly helpful book that says, in a world devoid of redemption, no stories of redemption anymore, or they're very rare, we want to prove our enoughness, not to God, but to one another. We want to save ourselves. We want to save ourselves, says David Zoll, and we we'll do it in any way we can. And here in Exodus, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You don't need to save yourselves. I've rescued you. And you're to have no other gods before me. In our hearts, there is a need to worship someone or something. But then how does that flesh out? How does it come out? We've begun on this already. What are the forms? Well, there are millions, billions, gazillions. Is that a word? That's how much money Donald Trump may own. I don't know. Bill Gates, perhaps. There is millions of ways that this heart, this desire can manifest itself. Look at verse 4 again. Why is God so inclusive? You shall not make for yourselves... Listen to how inclusive God is. An idol in the form of anything where, in heaven above, earth below, or in the waters below. God doesn't want any aspect of his creative order to be left out. Do not make for yourselves any idol from any part of my creation, whether you're a Christian or not. Another man who's helped me understand this is a man called Dick Keyes. Dick Keyes, in his book, uh, No God But God, understands very helpfully in the modern world. He says we have two longings in our hearts. We, we have a longing for transcendence, that's otherness, that's greatness, that's aboveness. And we also have a longing for imminence, closeness. And he says we have to find a pair of idols that work together. You think, what on earth does that mean? Let me uh, explain it. Think about the sexual revolutions that happened since the 1960s and think about the modern world with... Uh, all the different convictions on what is appropriate in the sexual realm. 
The value of transcendence is that freedom rules. Freedom is God. No one can challenge what I say. That gives you transcendence. No one can question that. That's the overarching idol that you live for. No one can challenge that. And so then what does that allow? Imminence, close. You can behave however you want. Because of the God of freedom, I can live and sleep with whoever I want. I can change my identity whenever it suits me. I'm saying this respectfully, but this is what the conviction is. Because the overarching value is freedom. Therefore, the close, the imminent God is sexuality. I'm going to live for pleasure. But freedom rules and reigns. But freedom by itself is not enough. I have to have a near idol to fulfill that is paired together. Think about another one. Think about uh, love. Love conquers all. The human capacity for love is great. Again, mixed with freedom. Therefore, my comfort is king. That's the near idol. I can comfort my heart with chocolate galore, whether it's Easter or not. I've had a hard day, so chocolate and red wine for me. That's the pairing that uh, really mediates my need. There's someone chuckling. I won't say who that is. You can pay me later. That's how they work together. It's the near and the far idol that act as a pair to say, I'm not going to believe in the God of the Bible. I'm going to exchange his glory for another. He's not supreme in my life, so how do I replace him? It's with the two idols that work together, a faraway idol that gives me transcendence, meaning humanity has great power and capacity for good. But that's not enough just to believe that. You have to come closer and say, comfort is king. Freedom rules and reigns. Love is supreme. Shade sung about that. But your near God is controllable. Your near God gives you comfort, and your far God gives you transcendence and meaning and all of these work together as pairs to substitute for the glory of God and his supremacy it's easy to say I know a workaholic I live with one it's easy when the idol is out there and you can see the timesheet that is there not just so you do a good job not just so you can work hard you work jolly hard why because of the enoughness you want to prove yourself you want approval from other people why do people struggle with food, whether it's overeating or undereating? Because I have an eating disorder because it's a way of showing my worth. I feel worthless unless I'm in control of this part of my lifestyle. And it's crippling and debilitating whether you overeat or whether you undereat. Well, neither of those apply to me. It's not sex for me. It's not money. I'm not living for career. It's not enoughness there. It's not parenting. I parent, I parent perfectly, says someone. Well, really, no one does. If you really think that none of these apply to you, you're not a workaholic, you're not a sexaholic, you're not a drinkaholic or a chocaholic, or maybe it's just control for you. You don't want anyone to get too close for you. You think that actually you're secure enough yourself. God says, I am the Lord your God. I've rescued you from Egypt. You shall have no gods before me. Even as a Christian, we can uh, add our little bit of extra so we can say Jesus plus something is more. The gospel equation surely is this. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus by himself plus anything is not the gospel. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. It's the need for idols. The form can come in so many different ways. And we all have it. And there's only one way out, and that's the sledgehammer of destruction. The destruction of idols is our only solution. 
If you or I are going to make any progress in this as Christians or not yet Christians, you need to understand your heart at a deeper level. You need to go deep. You need to spend some time reflecting and praying over what you really struggle with. There are only two ways to function in this world. Either you are an idolater, you follow someone, you're bound to someone. You've followed it because you think it's freedom, it's career. I'm going to get away from the kids because they make my life hard. It's career because I have a name. People will appreciate me there more than home. People will appreciate me there because then I get rewarded more than I do at home. Sometimes you can function like that. You're either an idolater saying, I want to make a God in my image, Isaiah 44. Or you're a follower. If you're an idolater, you say, I want to make God in my image. I'm going to fashion an effigy in my image of my making for my glory. Or you're a follower. And a follower says, I want God to make me in his image. And that's vastly different. You either make a God by your own hands or you long from your heart for God to make you into his image more. An idolater would say, I can't follow a God I was speaking to a man about this this week. An idolater says, I can't follow a God who would cross my will. I can't follow a God who would say that in the Bible. And so you skip over it. That's what an idolater does. You're making a God in your own making. You're not listening to God. You're sitting in authority over the Bible, picking out bits that you wish. But a follower says, I have a real God. He's revealed himself through his word. I'm not molding him. I'm not shaping him, Isaiah 44. I'm worshipping him. I'm submitting to him. I'm listening to him. He has supremacy in my life above anything or anyone else. I was in Rosebury this week at CU. And one of the questions I asked the girls there as we worked through Mark's gospel was this. Do you have a God of your own making? If Jesus is this big, if he's this powerful over nature, over sin, if he's got this claim so he can call a person, they can leave their livelihood and they follow him, is your God that big? Is your God that great? Until you settle that issue, you'll never be able to destroy the idols in your heart. But then here comes the sledgehammer in three parts. Once you've identified the idols in your heart, that are you following the God of the Bible or not? Are you in love with him? Do you adore him? Do you long to give him supremacy? Until you answer that question, you can't get the sledgehammer out in these three ways. Firstly, you need to identify your idols. Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's not the gospel. Secondly, you have to see who Jesus really is. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of bondage, out of the land of slavery. The Old Testament reveals the story of how God interacts with his wayward people, Israel. They were under a hard taskmaster in Egypt, and God, with the strength of his mighty hand, rescues his people. In the New Testament, God deals with his people in a very similar but a different way. His mighty arm is revealed through redemption, through salvation, through rescue, He buys his people. He buys his people at the price of his son's life. Therefore, if you believe in Jesus, it means that you alone, Jesus, are my justifier. You alone are my surety. You alone are my redeemer and rescuer. You alone are my king and my friend. 
If you have a wooden worktop like we do at home, once a year, it's been four years since I did it last, you need to sand it down. Then you need to get the oil out and roller it. It takes maintenance. It looks nice and shiny for a while until the next hot cup of coffee goes on it. But it takes investment. It takes reapplying. Friends, to have a mastery over idols in your life, you need to understand your heart. You need to reapply the gospel like a varnish. Not every four years, not even once a year. Every day, you're seeking to know God deeper through his spirit-empowered word to realize that it is God who justifies. Romans 8 says this, it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ died, he's risen, he sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? What is Paul saying? God alone is supreme. I'm not going to mow my front lawn for the approval of my neighbor. They cannot and they will not justify me. They will accuse me, but they cannot justify me. My work colleagues, I'm going to work hard from 9 to 6, whatever the time is, from 7 to 5, long shifts, overtime when needed. But there must be working within boundaries. I don't want to be a workaholic. They cannot justify me. Even my parents, I long for their approval. But only Christ can justify me. Even myself. When it comes to food or drink, only Christ can justify me. Friends, these are deep motivational issues. But we need to reapply the gospel to ourselves every single day. You need to go deep. And finally, do you know the best news of all from this passage? It's in verse 4. It might surprise you. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The jealousy of God is a safe place for Christians. How can God be jealous? Why is he jealous? God is jealous because he's a God of abundant love. Because of the commitment that God has for his people, he does not want any of his people's hearts to go to another. He's jealous for the love and affections of his people. I hate to see you in the arms of any other lover, says God. I've rescued you. I've redeemed you at the cross. A greater redemption that happened even from the hands of Pharaoh. And I want your heart. I want you to be ravished by my love, says Jesus. I want you to know the security of my promises, says the Father. I want you to know the love of God, Father and Son, says the Spirit, as he makes the knowledge of God real to our hearts. You'll never understand the jealousy of God unless you see that his love is covenantal, his promises centered on the person of his Son. And God is completely committed to bringing out his good, pleasing and perfect will through the work of his Son and the power of the Spirit. And what's that? To make us holy, more like his Son, but also to make us happy in his Son. Living with him forever, with the forever family. And every member of the forever family 
always gives God complete supremacy. Let's pray.